Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Welcome to Gross Anatomy, everybody. Chase and Cohen, how are you? How are you, Lauren? I'm good, thanks. Good. And and I'm Dr. Jason Cohen, and who and next to me is my co-host, Lauren Taylor. With a cool background, a new cool background. New wallpaper, everyone. Yes. Wow, I like it. Thanks. And today we have with us my big brother. I always grew up feeling that I had these these two brothers that I that were my two brothers. And and you were my bigger brother for many reasons of the two brothers. Um Jamie last That is that is true. We were uh Really, a great group of people uh, grew, growing up on the Upper East Side in a uh, synagogue that was just the Cohens, the Lastners, maybe the Corfs, and a couple of others. And just uh, we had no choice but to become brothers. And yeah. I'm glad we did. We grew up in a shtetl almost. Almost, almost. You could call it that. It's not that anymore. No, it but is it's hustling and bustling now. It, it did kind of feel that way when. when when we were younger, I think, especially going to that synagogue. Yeah, it did. It, did. it was a small synagogue, but uh, the beauty of it is everybody was welcome. Uh, and it was a, uh, you could go dressed as you wanted. You didn't have to dress up uh, to go to shul. I met you, I think, when I was seven, actually, or eight or something like that. I was in, I was in nursery school when we moved there uh, down from downtown. And, and that's, and that's, you know, so I've really known you for a long frickin' time. A really long time. For me, yeah. it's got to be about 40, 45 years at least. Yeah, exactly. And let's, let's be clear. The maturity, we're about the same age. Right, the exactly. Age that, 12. The age, right, 12. On a good day. Yeah. And, and I recently um, mentioned in, in, one of our, in one of our posts on our social media I meant I don't I, I guess you saw it because we tagged you. I mentioned I your did. father, who who was this amazing presence for anybody who ever walked into that synagogue. Your dad was the guy, the man, you know, kind of like Don the Don Corleone of the synagogue, but not in a scary way at all, in, in a loving, comforting way. Um and so so it's very fitting that having just been talking about you, you know, because I like to give out mentoring advice and your dad gave this amazing advice. Um, I'm so happy having you here because I knew mentally I wanted to have you on around September 11th to talk about the world and the world you've been in. And, and um, so thank you, Jamie, for, for being here with us today. I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, a, I'm excited because I'm, I, I watch your, listen to your podcast. I also love guessing uh, what items you're posting and what kind of operations you're doing. Uh, cool. be, uh, being that I'm an EMT, I try, but no, I'm not too good at it. Yeah. And, and you gave me one of my most frightening experiences. And I, we actually had your son... Prince Fox as a guest, although he's not he's not Prince Fox anymore, is he? He his I think his company is Prince Fox Music. Right. But he he does his own production under Sam Lasner. Sam Lasner, but he changed his name. We were talking about that. He changed his music. No, he name. came back. He came back. Oh, he came, oh he's Fox. back. Okay, he's back. He kind of like unretired, like formerly uh, known as right. Right. Exactly. So you know, you 
probably did one of the scariest things for me. And we talked and I talked about it with him. He wasn't aware of it at all because he was practically a newborn when you put him in my lap in synagogue and literally scared. I had never held a baby. He was the first baby I've ever held. And you probably didn't know that because I think I was already in medical school. So you're probably thinking, oh, this guy's a responsible guy. He's becoming a doctor. You, I'm not kidding. You scared uh, to this day. I still am somewhat traumatized. You put this thing without any ability to hold itself up in my lap. Do you realize that? Uh, I, I recall that. I, I recall you getting nervous. I recall, uh, I think your father also getting a little like, what the heck are you doing? Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's amazing how time flies. Yeah. That, that little baby talks, produces music <laughs> for world artists. Uh, it's pretty scary. Pretty scary. Yeah. When and why and, and what made you become a, a, a volunteer ambulance guy? What, what's the word for it? EMT, emergency EMT. medical technician. So um, I always wanted to be a doctor. Um, but I, was I never new, knew that. But I was not a student. I did not enjoy school. I did not enjoy uh, studying. Um, and also some of the complicated stuff was, was not up my alley. I was good at math, good at science, but just didn't have uh, the wherewithal to sit and listen all day to classes and go through a minimum of six years to go, you know, become a doctor. Um, so when I was 17 and a half, so that's uh, 41 years ago, uh, I became an EMT here in the state of New York. At uh, age 17? You did 17 it that, it was that long ago? 17 and a half years old. Wow. So uh, became an EMT uh, it, and began volunteering on Central Park Medical which was the, and still is, uh, the ambulance uh, that covers everything in the park from races to concerts to the Pope. Um, so I've met a lot of the, you know, I met Billy Joel, I've met the Pope, uh, because we're backstage. Pope Why do you meet Paul the Pope? II, Pope John Paul II had a mass uh, in the Great Lawn, and we were there. So uh, that was pretty amazing. And then we cover basically all events. So that was the first ambulance uh, that I joined and I got married. I was living in Forest Hills, joined the Forest Hills Volunteer Ambulance uh, and enjoyed that very much. And then we started uh, an ambulance here on the Upper East Side. And I joined that, was one of the founding members. And of Hatsala. Correct. And what I is Hatsala? Atsala means to save, but it is uh, a volunteer ambulance that uh, is in the state of New York and now all over the world. All over the world. All over the world. It's, it's unbelievable. And uh, we are a volunteer ambulance on the Upper East Side responding to all calls. And I feel like you were pretty early on as part, part of Hatsala, right? I, I mean, so when did it even start? It started in the 70s. And on the Upper East Side in the late 80s. So what's crazy and weird and amazing is anytime anyone in our community needed an ambulance, you were there. You were at, you know, you would show up. And so you, I mean, great things, crazy things, sad things. You were always, you were always there. Uh, we, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess we were a small group then. Um, now we're very, very big. We've got a lot of volunteers uh, I'm, I would call myself semi-retired. I really haven't gone on a call 
since COVID uh, because they didn't want people 55 and over going on calls. So you're an old man. I'm very old. If you only knew Jason, how old I am. Uh, I'm very, very old. Uh, And they didn't want anybody going on calls uh, that were 55 and over. Now, the guys that are on the ambulance are in their 20s. They can lift. They can move. They can run upstairs. I can do the same, but not the speed and, I guess, the the quality that is required now. I did my 40 years, as they say. Yeah. I got to tell you, it was always an amazing, comforting feeling, no matter where we would be in any situation. They'd call the ambulance. And Jamie would be there. And it was always, it really, it was just a great thing. Thank you. That was, uh, it's a community ambulance. That's what we were there for. Yeah. And it really felt, does it still feel, or did it still feel pre-COVID like a small, it really felt because of Hatsala, because of what you did, it felt like a small community up there. Does it feel that way anymore? No, we've gotten very big uh, with uh, all the hospitals now having, Doctors' offices, I would say during the day, most of our calls were at doctors' offices where a patient came in for something and it turned out to be an urgent matter rather than a visit to the doctor. Um, and, uh, and there we went, you know, yeah. uh, and that's what it's turned into. It's very busy now. And then so, so since we're September 1, we're, we're here in September now. So... Um, I was already here on the West Coast. I had just moved to the West Coast, but but wow. I I don't really know. Yeah, it's been 22 years since I've since I've been here. I don't I don't think you and I have ever talked about what your experience was with 9-11 and and what that was like for you. And I don't know if it's gonna, you know, be traumatic to talk about. I'm sure you've talked no, about it a bit. I've talked so, about it many times. I talk uh, as a matter of fact, I going to be talking to several schools next week. It's part of my uh, PTSD therapy to talk about it uh, yeah. and not keep it inside. Um, but it's a whole, I mean, you were alive, you were, uh, you were understanding of what was going on. Uh, talking to students now in high school, it's a whole different ballgame. I mean, they're, they're under 20, so they have no recollection of it. So it's a, a different type of lesson plan or discussion uh, to have than, than what I experienced. I share briefly what I experienced, um, a little more obviously with you. Uh, but most of the subject uh, matter is, uh, telling anybody that they can do anything they want. They can help anybody they want. They can step up to the plate. No, I'm, I'm not a Superman. I'm far from a Superman. You are a Superman. No, I'm You've not. always been a Superman. No, no. So, no. so if I'm Superman, you're a super Superman. And you're, super, and you're super, super woman, Lauren. Uh, <laughs> but uh, let's 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 all get get on those outfits at least to uh, watch. Get our the, capes. Right, yeah. that's right. Um, no, but uh, you know, in, in a nutshell, I was a commodities broker working three blocks away from the World Trade Center. Got a call that uh, no, no, it was AOL, which is had just started. Give you an idea. It wasn't. Uh, it's not like we have now computers where you know before the plane hits that it's going to hit. Um, on AOL, it said a small plane had hit the World Trade Center. So we went to the back of the office to look, and when you looked at the top of the World Trade Center, it looked a lot bigger than a little plane. Um, and then a couple of seconds later, the uh, ambulance radio went off, um, and we were told to respond to City Hall as a place of collection. Uh, and I started walking up Broadway and hundreds, 
if not thousands of people were running the other way. Uh, and then when I got a little closer, I was about two and a half blocks away, three blocks away, uh, you even saw a bigger hole than uh, a little Cessna could have done. I got close to Century 21 when the second plane hit, um, saw that, and that I remember vividly, seeing the plane hit the World Trade Center and then the explosion on the other side. Um, and then uh, during the second collapse, uh, during the, the, the first, first of all, we were working. We never expected the towers to come down. You know, yeah. the two planes hit. That was enough. Okay, now let's do our job. That's what we're training. Wait, for. oh wait. So, so you walked over there and were and walked ran, over there. Ran, ran, Yeah, I did run. Believe it or yeah. not. Yeah, and and you were there before the second plane hit. Correct. And you were there working already, trying to. We were. I jumped on a Brooklyn ambulance that had just arrived, um, and started working with them, um, and then doing then, what? So. You can't trans. We, we couldn't transport because we had parked right near the Millennium Hotel, and behind us were other vehicles, so we weren't going anywhere. So right. we opened up the back doors and the side door, and it was basically, you know, what do you need? Okay, here you go. Give us your name. Come in. Go out. Um, we didn't have. And who any, were the people? The people were people who had random people. I have right. dust in my eyes. Do you have a bottle of water? I I need a bandaid. I cut my arm. Do you have bandage? Uh, we didn't treat anything major, and frankly, we didn't really have a lot of time in the ambulance right. to um, uh, treat people. And then uh, it was, uh, you know, we heard thumping. We heard the people. We didn't look, but we heard that thump of people falling. We, we were close enough to hear it, and it's one of those things that still gives me the EBGBs. Yeah. Um, and then uh, it's got to be minutes uh, where we heard uh fireman telling us to get the uh get away get away it looks like it's coming down and i remember looking up and seeing the big antenna just tipped like that and i was like oh my god and we just ran as far as we could we got in uh, about a half a block away into a building and we were there with uh about 50 or 60 people um we had luckily the building uh, was remained open, so we got ourselves into a lobby, then into a second floor office. Um, but it was just a lot of dust, a lot of it was difficult to breathe. Um, we had three asthmatics that we had to get to the hospital with no equipment, and we had one firefighter that was uh, very seriously injured, and we had to get to the fire uh, to uh, downtown Beekman Hospital. It's got a new name now. I forgot what it's called now. Um, and we just sat there in the building waiting, you know, till we could get out. And then we finally decided to try to make a move for it. And because we're a block and a half away, you know, we had a good three inches of dust and dirt and debris and whatever a building can knock down. Uh, we uh, And we started walking very quickly. And then we started hearing the beeps off of the fire radios that the second building was coming down. And we looked for a door, opened the door, and as uh, you couldn't see, we couldn't see. We were just keeping our heads down and trying to walk slowly. We knew the direction we were walking, and uh, I walked, stepped in, and it was a, a staircase of a parking lot. And I fell, and two of the guys fell on top of me, and I hurt my right leg. Didn't know what it was, but when I tried to get up, it wobbled. So I knew that I had done ligaments and break the leg or anything like that. So I just uh, 
um, the fireman had like a, a small bag with him, and in it he had two pieces of, I guess it was a splint. Yeah. I just put it on each side of my leg to stabilize it, and um, we got out, limped our way uh, to the hospital, got them, the three asthmatics and the uh, fireman to the hospital. I don't know whatever happened to them. Um, and then I made my way to Beth Israel Hospital uh, on, a, on an ambulance as an EMT in the front seat. Um, and when I got there, I just, you know, I said to myself, here I am. You know, I've been trained for 14 years. This is the big one. Um, I'm not quitting. So I got a brace, put on a brace, um, a makeshift brace, took some Advil and some other medicines, and we, uh, we headed back to Ground Zero. Um, I was assigned first to uh, Manhattan Community uh, College to set up a mass center um, with tents inside their gym uh, for surgery purposes. Uh, then we were, then I was assigned with a, I think it was a Beth Israel ambulance to go to Chelsea Piers and start setting up body bags near the ice rink. Um, and then we got, I got back downtown at about 3.30. Now throughout all this, I had, hadn't booked Mara. All Mara knew was that I was going, Mara is my wife. Um, all Mara knew is that I was going back, you know, going to help this little plane. That's all she knew. Um, hadn't talked to her all day because the main uh, uh, antenna was the World Trade Center for... All Soviet phones were down. Every, everything all, was down. Yeah. Um, and I finally got to uh, outside Chelsea Piers. There was a Hatzala ambulance, one of ours, one of our volunteer ambulances. I jumped on, uh, saw a couple of guys I knew. He kept trying to call, kept trying to call. One of the people got through to their wives and just basically jotted down numbers and just said that we're all fine, but there's no phone service. Um, and then we got online to, you know, uh, so we're on 23rd Street. You're talking a mile and a half away from the World Trade Center. And there's a line of ambulances um, at about 4 o'clock. And at 1 o'clock, we were told to go home. We had moved maybe a block. So... It was one of those events that, um, you know, in hindsight, you say to yourself, such a big building, and it was either you made it or you didn't make it. There weren't people coming out injured. There was no, you know, mass casualty incident. People, it was a mass casualty incident, but not in the sense no. that we expected that we would be, okay, you get on this ambulance. Okay, you get on this ambulance or anything like that. Um, I came home. Um, I had a keepa on my head, and when I took off the keepa, that was the only thing that wasn't dirty. Uh, my hair was clean there. Um, and then the following day, we were assigned to the Upper East Side uh, to manage all EMS calls because all of EMS was down at ground zero. And then Wednesday afternoon, I was assigned to work at ground zero um, till it became a rescue and recovery on Friday afternoon, came home went to synagogue and two of the doctors touched my knee, looked at my knee and basically diagnosed it there. Uh, I made an appointment to see Dr. Norm Scott, who was then the knee surgeon for the New York Knicks and the New York Rangers. And our good friend, Alan called us, uh, called me about a half hour before he goes, ah, I'm not going to, and you're going to my friend, Dr. Howard Levy. 
Uh, and I said, you know, I'm going to, he goes, I'm telling you, this is a guy you're going to get along with. Uh, and 22 years later, I'm still in touch with him. Uh, he's done six of my knee surgeries. Uh, three you had three. to have six surgeries on that same knee? No, three and three. Uh, 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 because once this one got weak, the other one got weaker. And it was like a tennis match. But thank God they've been behaving. Um, and then after my first surgery, uh, did not want to talk to anybody. Um, and somebody came in and said, you know, you basically have PTSD. And I was like, what is that? He goes, well, post-traumatic stress disorder. You need to see a psychologist. And I said, that's ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to see a psychologist. I'm what, perfectly did fine. You, was stuff going on with you? or, or Oh, or, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was very, very, uh, very depressed, very anxious. Um, I think very upset at the fact that here I am trained for so many years and we didn't do anything. We yeah. just sat there. We did nothing. Um, not to any fault of myself, but that's the way the event happened. Um, and I refused to go see anybody. And of course, uh, my father came in and got in my face, hockey style, and just said, look, you got to do it for three months. Uh, you got to see a psychologist. Uh, what you saw in one day, I did not see in three wars. Um, you have to get out there and you have to see, see a psychologist. Um, then he brought in a friend of his who was a, also a good friend of mine, a, new, a neurologist. And he said, you know, when you had uh, your knee problem, where do you go? To a knee surgeon. When you have a stomach problem, where do you go? To? You, go to, you know, and then he said, what you have in your head right now is you need someone to help you straighten that out. Um, and that in itself is an amazing story, uh, because I had a brace on for six months. I had PTSD, uh, and I show up at this doctor's office, New York Cornell, uh, not a lot of art like you have and you display in your, uh, offices, but just certificate on top of certificate. And basically the last patients she really, uh, treated and continues to treat were people from the Vietnam War. Well, wow. because it wasn't really post-traumatic. Uh, you have that in certain countries where there's terrorism, but this was really the first time that we had major event yeah. like this. And I walk in and I am in no mood for, I'm, I want to like get fixed as quickly as possible. And I go in as a psychologist and she goes, okay, Jamie, um, what are you ordering for dinner? Let's make believe we're having dinner. And I'm like, I'm not playing house here. Um, uh, what are you what are you talking about? He goes, tell me what you're having for dinner. Let's just make believe. I said, I'm, I'm not playing that game. So she said, I'll tell you what I'm having. I'm having a hamburger, French fries, and a glass of white wine. So she said, uh, what are you having? And I said, I'm not playing this game. She goes, okay, can I order for you? I said, you can do whatever you want. She says, you're having a Coca-Cola and a cow. And I looked at her and I said, I can't eat a cow. He goes, precisely. What you have in your head, you can't digest. And we have to cut up the pieces so that you're left with two or three pieces that the average mind can digest. So we spent six months going through every big thing and every little thing uh, that was a trigger that upset me, that I saw, uh, that I may have seen. Uh, we went through literally everything and we just did a check. You know, we, okay, that's okay. I got that. That's fine. That's fine. And was basically left with three or four items. Uh, the first one, uh, the boys noticed that when I walked anywhere and there was the sound of uh, planes overhead, 
um, I would go right into a store. But mm. without saying anything, I would just grab them and go into a store. Wow. Um, that, that has stopped. I mean, I'm pretty good at that. Second item was um, anytime I see dust and papers blow up, I automatically tear, begin tearing, because that's all we saw for three, four days. Uh, you know, reservations, business cards, pieces of desks, wedding yeah. pictures. That's, you know, that's what went up to basically 14th Street. It was just tons of this stuff. Um, uh, the third thing uh, was on Thursday night in the middle of the night, um, three McDonald's trucks showed up um, on the west side of Ground Zero where we were stationed. And they said, can you help us? So I said, sure, you know, I'm going to unload food. Absolutely. You know, we've got so many rescuers here. I'd love to do that. And they open up the back and it's empty and it's refrigerated trucks. Um, and we were asked to uh, load right. what was in the winter garden into the trucks. So to this day, and very much triggered during COVID when we had uh, refrigerated trucks at Mount Sinai, Lenox Hill, at all the New York hospitals and the city hospitals. Um, refrigerated trucks are a trigger for me. Wow. Um, but I am capable now of looking at them and saying, refrigerated truck, they're carrying food, they're not doing this. But during COVID, uh, when you saw it on TV, that was a, a major trigger because I knew wow. that they weren't keeping these trucks outside hospitals for no other reason. Wow. And then the last thing which I got over very, very quickly, thanks to the boys' humor, is um, I have six, uh, excuse me, eight screws and four wires and my own tendon that fixed my ligaments in my right leg. So when we went to fly to see Andy in California, the boys went over to the TSA agents, excitingly saying, oh, my dad's going to set off the metal detector. And that cracked me up and that made it a lot easier. But, you know, when I yeah. get on planes, I get a little nervous, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much over it. Huh. Um, you, made, you made me think of, of two particular things, one about you and one about your dad. Um, actually, they're, they're both about your dad, but one includes you. Um, your dad was a Marine and a Jewish Marine, which is especially back in the day is pretty rare. And I, rem and again, your dad, as you know, uh, as, as we, uh, all of our group knows was this amazing guy. And I remember sitting in synagogue one day, um, and he looked very, he looked very pensive. I don't know if you were there, you must've been somewhere, but he looked, he was like all serious, you know, he had his head down in his hand and he just was looking real serious. And then he kind of just picked his head up and he looked at me and my dad and he goes, you know, I, it was D-Day, it was the anniversary of D-Day. And he goes, um, he goes, and he start. I guess he was just thinking about it. And he's like, I was on one of those beaches, storming the beaches and everyone around me left and right was dying. Everyone was dropping dead, except somehow, except for me. And he's like, what, what the hell was I doing there? What, why was I there? You know, and, and, and how am I here now? Right. And, and here, I, I still remember hearing him talk about that and how he, your dad was, how did he get through that? You know, he, he got through that same kind of thing as you did. So he did the entire Pacific campaign of World War II. 
against the Japanese, then the Korean War, and the beginning of the Vietnam War. Um, and he truly believed in, in country, uh, very different yeah. than, than now. Um, yeah. But he, he believed in country, he believed in, in defending the country that gave him, and I think that's what kept them going. Um, yeah. You know, when we moved into our apartment on uh, 94th Street, you know, my mother's decorating, and my father said, okay, are you done decorating? Good. I ordered an American flag and it's going to be behind me where I sit at the table. And <laughs> since I was a kid, that's, you know, if you, t- you have pictures of my father in the living room, there's the American flag behind them, the Marine Corps emblem on the left. Uh, you know, we called it Command Center North. Yeah. Uh, but, that, you know, that's what it was. That kept them you know, going through it and, and successfully. And he was very much uh, my rock uh, throughout. He was uh, amazing, as was my family, my kids, my wife. Um, and then after about a year and a half, they, they sent me to a psychologist, a psychiatrist. who said, you need medication. Um, and I said, no, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. He goes, no, no, you should try this stuff. It'll help you. So the, I started on a medication called Paxil. Uh-huh. And, you know, the, one of the, you're, I mean, you're a doctor. I don't have to tell you this, but you know this, the, uh, the label says, oh, this will help you for this, for this. And then there's 10,000 little, little, little words that say, well, the second item is you may gain weight. And I right. went from 225 to 463 pounds. You got that big? I was ginormous. I I didn't see you then for a while. I was a I was a forty two waist. I went up to a size fifty eight waist. Wow. I was yeah. I was as and as Andy. I have a picture of him in my in his pool. He calls <laughs> it the Moo Moo picture because I look like yeah. a Moo Moo. Um, and I realized uh, you know when when it got hard to play hockey with the boys, they were starting to play ice hockey. I couldn't get on skates anymore or anything, that it was time to lose weight. And that's where you stepped in. And, you know, we talked about lap bands and where you should do it and what kinds you should do. And I've had a lap band now for 12 years. I'm back to the weight that I was. I'm lighter than I was before 9-11 and still losing weight uh, and loving it and running marathons and doing triathlons and hiking and doing other crazy humanitarian things. Yeah. And then and now, you know, you've 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 become this this whole other guy, you know, you're no longer a commodities trader or anything like that. And you're doing weird and wacky hiking and nutty trying to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Right. Yep. So after therapy and 9-11, I decided that, you know, money is not everything. It's important, but it's not everything. Um, Started working in schools, doing student life and then was. Uh, through Alan, given and uh, met some people. So uh, introduced me to an organization in Israel, and we started their U.S. office here. And that has brought us to be the largest group ever to make it up to the top of Kilimanjaro with people with disabilities. We had four people with paraplegia that made it to the top with special wheelchairs um, that we have uh, uh, made in Israel. We just came back, Mara and I, from four weeks in uh, three weeks. Uh, at the Polish-Ukraine border doing humanitarian uh, work there uh, because in Ukraine, uh, people with disabilities are not really uh, looked after at all. And uh, we basically went in as far as eastern Ukraine, uh, brought them to the border, um, and then from there triaged them and then sent them on their way to a country 
that would take them based on their disability. So Scandinavian countries, um, a lot of the northern countries north of, uh, of Poland were taking people. Israel took a couple, uh, not a couple, uh, 100,000, but all walks of life, non-denominational, all disabilities, uh, some really incredible, incredible stories uh, that we shared together. We had eight people with us over a period of three weeks. We have people on the ground there now. We have an app uh, that if you are a person who has a disability uh, and want to get out of Ukraine, uh, it's gotten around social media. Uh, so people are contacting us 24-7. And we are now up to about 5,000 to 6,000 people with disabilities that we have evacuated, triaged, and found new homes for and their families. And we've provided humanitarian aid to approximately 18,000 people uh, additionally. And uh, most of them people with disabilities and the elderly. I, are you a thrill seeker? Not at all. It, it, it's, um, it's a cross, I think, between what Benji Brown used to say, because this is what we do. It's just, you just got to do it. And uh, we also had a rabbi in high school, Rabbi Lukstein, who taught us that we are our brother's keeper. And I always, you know, took that to heart very much so. And I guess that's part of the reason I was a volunteer medic. Uh, instead of dropping out and not going to medical school, not doing anything along the medical lines, I did that. And this was one of those where, you know, over the years we've all read, you know, all people have read about atrocities all over the world and how the world stands idly by. Sadly, uh, in this case, uh, it's somewhat similar, but within the refugee center that held 1,000 to 2,500 people, um, we were all the same heart, same people. We worked with 25 different countries, people from 25 different countries, and our hearts beat the same way. We were there to help people who were in, in dire need of help. Um, and at, you know, at no time, you know, did I say it was this a mistake or anything like that? I felt it was the right thing to do. And now I'm starting to look at uh, possibly bringing some of our students and or other groups uh, because it's fairly safe uh, to do it in Poland or in- You never felt that you were in any sort of danger over there? No, never. I remember, you know, that when I said, are you a thrill seeker? It, I remembered now that you also, when we were, we were kids, I think, you went to Russia, right? You, you- right. You went on a mission to you got Russia. A great memory, you're, dude. You're, it, you're young. I forgot about that. It just popped into my head. You went in the '80s, right, or the set? When, when were you? The in, '80s, mid '80s, when Gorbachev came to power, we went for Passover to bring stuff in uh, and teach Hebrew and do a lot of things. Yeah, not a thrill seeker because a thrill seeker is also one who's prepared to bungee jump. Not me, a uh, person who's prepared to parachute. Not in this lifetime. And uh, you might see me on a kiddie roller coaster when we go to, I will not do roller coasters. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to stepping up to, to people in need, uh, my father, Mr. Brown, uh, implanted it, you know, that in. Not my father. <laughs> uh, well, you did, Jason. You did. I mean, you take a look at the, the podcast you have done and, and the life you have chosen for yourself. And the countless lives that you save every day, do I wish at times that I would be able to do the same thing? Of course. So we all, we all are doing our piece, um, some in different ways. I mean, 
I, I could call you a thrill seeker because you pull out the stuff out of people's, you know, whatever, <laughs> yeah. and then you post it, and I'm like, yeah, I never saw anything like that. That's a little. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I still remember you telling us stories about your your rush. It it just came into my head. I totally had forgotten about it until now. How old you know you had to basically? I was nineteen. You weren't supposed to be there, and the the people you were meeting with, you know, it was Jews who were having in hiding, basically, right? And they were, were called, the, to, the term for them were refused nicks, right? Uh, the people who were refused visas to exit to go anywhere, Israel, America, to get out, just because they were Jewish. Um, and when Gorbachev came to power, sadly he passed away yesterday, but when Gorbachev came, he started to uh, make it a little more democratic and started opening up the Iron Curtain so that people could get out. We went in to, uh, to meet a lot of these people, get to know them, and then come back and speak about them and, you know, get the, uh, the ball rolling on trying to get visas for them. And we actually had the opportunity uh, to do that as well. Did you go more than once? I went to Russia. I went for two weeks went with right. Josh, David Thurstenfield. Did you ever, were you ever, I remember you telling me that you were pretty scared at certain times there. Oh right? yeah. Oh yeah. 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 You were always, uh, you know, you, we watch movies, you know, so you think the KGB is following you. This one's following you and that one's following you. And, in the end, I don't think anybody followed three college guys, uh, but we did. We met a lot of, you know, leaders of the community. It was right after Sharansky was arrested. So there was fear. Um, we did go to the synagogue um, on Passover and you did feel like you belong. So we didn't hang out there that long. Uh, we did, you know, run a couple of meals. We taught some Hebrew lessons, songs. Uh, and did a lot of talking and visiting people's homes uh, to get as much information as we could so that we were able to get them visas to whatever countries they wanted to go to. You're going to write a book? You, you definitely have a lot of stories here to tell. So it's funny. I, uh, I, I don't write well, Jason. <laughs> I'm not a good student. I, don't, I mean, I could, I could write a book. But it would be more like a you know a kid's book coloring book. Yeah. Even that would be tough. You would have to do the illustrating. I would maybe right. write. That would yeah. be an interesting one. Yeah. You know. How do you even like how do you get involved in like what you're doing to help people in Ukraine with disabilities? Like how how do you even So that that that's a great question. So um that a year and a half ago during COVID, um there was uh there were missiles shot at Israel. And our Israeli organization realized that people with disabilities were not able to be evacuated um, because, A, they weren't able to get to their safe rooms. They couldn't go downstairs. They couldn't do a lot of the things that, that we can. Um, so after the uh, missiles stopped pouring on Israel, we, uh, we put in a room uh, all members of the military, the police, rescue units, and about 25 people, our organization, uh, Accessibility Accelerator, Access Israel and Israel. Um, and we all sat in a room. Uh, they sat in a room and just talked it out, you know, and put together a plan in the event that, God forbid, it would happen again. And lo and behold, it didn't happen there. It happened in Ukraine. And it's pretty much a similar system in that um, we have first responders. We can't do it all. Um, we're volunteers. 
even governments can't do it themselves. So we've collaborated with people in Ukraine, um, a lot of volunteers. We've, we've figured out ways to get people out, um, get them to certain borders, and then they're met by either us or representatives of us. Um, and then from there, we, we talk to them and try to figure out um, where the best place for them to go is um, in terms of their story themselves. So the uh, Scandinavian countries might be better for one uh, specific disability than another. Um, in terms of the, you know, I mean, we've got many incredible stories. We've had uh, the two most incredible that, that really sit in my mind not necessarily about how much it costs us to get them out, but in terms of incredible is Ukraine was one of the largest populations of Holocaust survivors. We evacuated a 98-year-old woman and a 96-year-old man, Holocaust survivors, and they were reunited with family in Israel. Wow. Um, and the second one, which was pretty amazing, was we had a 27-year-old uh, blind woman uh, who was on dialysis, uh, needed dialysis every 36 to 48 hours. And she was Eastern Ukraine, right near the Russian border. We had an ambulance pick her up. We stopped uh, once in uh, Ukraine for dialysis, um, twice in Poland, and then got her and her mother to a relative. Uh, the, and they're now living happily ever after. And then in that local area, we actually contacted the taxi company and told them that we have this woman who's blind. Um, she's going to be going to dialysis every 36 to 48 hours. Will you provide free rides? And the, the taxi company agreed. Um, wow. So, so we've got it's, – it's been a, a volunteer collaborative effort. Every person that we're working with uh, are all volunteers, all people that – uh, are doing amazing things and also thinking out of the box. Uh, we have uh, one uh, gentleman that I met who was helping us with, uh, not helping us, was bringing in pet food into the Ukraine and coming back with animals, pet food animals. And when he didn't have a full truck, he would help us occasionally to bring people out. Um, so we had you know, various modes of transportation to get people out including ambulances um, that we were able to use. Um, and it's remarkable what we've, what we've accomplished. Uh, from the first time I went there in March to see what was going on to what we're doing now when I went the second time um, with a group of uh, eight people over a period of three weeks. East Mara and I stayed the three weeks. It was quite incredible. So is that pretty much now what you're focused on primarily work-wise? No. Uh, Work-wise, uh, we're focused on, I mean, I work in a school as a director of student life, but... Um, what school? North Shore Hebrew Academy. North Shore Hebrew Academy. Look at that. So, and it's great. And on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, I do this. And then uh, 24 hours a day, I'm on the cell phone seeing what's going on with the rescues. And when they, if, I have, if they have a question for me, which is very rare because I'm on this side of the pond... Um, then, you know, I get involved, but it's very, very rare that I'm, I'm getting involved. But when I was on the ground there, it was 24, literally 24 seven. What's your next trip or adventure? 
Uh, probably going to go back to Ukraine. Um, sadly, it's not in the headlines anymore, but it's gotten worse in the yeah. sense that when tragedy strikes, the wealthy are able to get out and find their way and get their money into new banks and so on and so forth. And the people escaping now uh, are very, 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 very poor, um, have been through six months of hell already and are not traveling by car. Some of them are walking miles. Some of them are scrounging pennies to get onto a train. And when they arrive to us, they're, you know, they're literally moving on fumes. And that's where you see the greatness of people who step up to the plate. The most amazing organization that uh, we had the opportunity to be to work with and get to know was um, World Kitchen, um, which is a uh, basically a group of tents and volunteers from all over the world that show up. It started in Haiti, and now every major disaster they show up and they serve three meals a day plus snacks. Uh, and when I mean meals, I mean major, major meals, pretty much covering all allergies. Um, I think the chef is a Spanish chef by the name of Jose Andreas. Uh, there was a documentary recently about him, and he started it just in Haiti, and it's now blown up to something really, really huge and quite remarkable um, what, what, what he, he does. I mean, feeding people who have absolutely nothing. Nothing. I have a pathetic question. What, what kind of, where were you sleeping when you guys were there? Like what? Excellent question. So the area that we were in was near the Medica border. Uh, Medica is near the Carpathian mountains. Um, and during the summer, it's an area where people go into Ukraine, Poland, and they vacation there. Well, during war, no one's vacationing there. So all the five-star hotels were empty. So a lot of them were available to us. So one of the things that I learned from 9-11 uh, and practiced it here is when we're volunteering and working, excluding the phone, uh, but we're, we're, when we're with people, we're with people working the 12 to 16 hour shift, doing what we got to do, and then we got to step away. So we stayed about 15 to 20 kilometers away from the border. So if we were needed at the border, we could get there in 20 minutes, but far enough that we weren't seeing it going on 24 hours a day, seeing in the hotels. And that was for our own mindset so that yeah. we don't come back with a second round of PTSD or first round for others. Yeah. Did you ever feel in harm's way or not, not at all? Uh, we heard the air sirens go off, I recall, once, but nobody moved. So I figured, you know what? If nobody moved, I'm not moving. Yeah. Uh, but we did hear the air raid sirens when we were at the border. Uh, it was scary at first, but... You know, if you've been to Israel or any other country, you hear them from time to time. Um, so never at all in harm's way, at all. Jamie, are you a, since, you know, we're, I'm a big pathetic pop culture fan. Um, or, is there a certain movie or TV show or anything you're watching lately that, that you're into? Just to So over COVID, we started watching a bunch of um, couple of documentaries, uh, but we spent a lot of time on shows that we've never watched. So we've watched Seinfeld seasons. Uh, now we just finished Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, loving that, and a couple of others. But uh, we're not big TV watchers. I'm more of a reader. Uh, but yeah, Curb Your Enthusiasm, we've been enjoying. 
You know, for me with Seinfeld, I never used to watch it because everybody would be, oh, Seinfeld, Seinfeld, Seinfeld. And I deliberately didn't watch it because Seinfeld's about a neurotic Jew from New York. And I'd be like, I don't need to watch a show about myself. But I finally, you know, watched it. It, it is great. So it is great. His stand-up, he just, uh, it's on Netflix. His stand-up is hilarious. Uh, really excellent. Uh, and I just heard that Curb just renewed for another season. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. Uh, but really, really, you know, trying try to stick to the humor. I'm yeah. not into the, the, the scary and gory movies anymore like I used to be. I yeah. like documentaries also. Cool. And, and food shows. I mean, I still like food. <laughs> Jamie, thank you for doing this with us. So we really in touch, my brother. Nice okay. meeting you, Lauren. Thank you so much for doing this, and thanks for all that you do. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Love you, buddy. Bye, Jim. Take Love care. You. Bye. Bye. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can check out more episodes on the evolving sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.